talking about them good old days songs, movies, radio plays Conjuring up the old-time ways in death's attic Okie dokie! Are you ready, Phil? <laughs> that was some show, I remember that. I don't, I don't know what you want anymore. Yeah. All I know is I've, every once in a while I'll throw that out. Where I'm in the situation, I'm like, are you ready, Phil? I don't know what that means. You don't anymore. know what it means. No one else would either. <laughs> Not anymore. Well, I used to. <laughs> I don't know about this intro. <laughs> Just the way it is. Okay, what's new that's old? Um, well, just on my ride over here, Dad, I was listening to a playlist on Spotify that started off with the Ink Spots. Um, I woke up this morning with the song, Address Unknown, oh, yeah. do, 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 in my head for some reason. So I listened to that. And then as I kept listening, other nice tunes came on, and one was by K-Star. I know her. I didn't, I, I, I had her on some old playlist from a long time ago, I remember... I remember that name, but I didn't really ever know who she was. But she was she's really great. She's got she a huge discography. I have one record of album of hers over there. You found your... You I found have my K-Star album right here. And it's actually kind of a, it's a coincidence here, because I want to talk a little bit later about this guy named Fox Butterfield. And what here's... A great name! <laughs> here's, the, here's the album that I have. K-Star with Les Paul, Joe Venuti... You know him? Mm-mm. A violin player. Mm. Um, jazzy, 20s, 30s. Wow. And Billy Butterfield. There's that name again. Billy Butterfield led orchestras and, and did the backing music mm. for uh, Lee Wiley. Oh. That's what I know best about him. This is from 1949. The song I'm, I was thinking of is not on this album. Uh, it must be something else yeah. I found somewhere else. I, just I, remember I went to the length of looking up each album trying to remember, have it come to my brain, but I, I don't know. Uh-huh. K-Star, good. Yeah. yeah. Can I tell you just a few sure. tidbits that I've picked up? Um, she was part Iroquois, part Irish-American. Interesting. And grew Lee up... Lee Wiley, too, was part right. American Indian. I wonder if they or... were... Nah. No. 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 I don't. I can't imagine. No, I don't think. I mean, so. it's just because if somebody has a same. <laughs> I wonder singers. if they knew Dennis Day too. Since Irish. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if Lee Wiley was part Irish. I was, uh, no, like? I'm talking about Kay and Dennis. Well, okay. How Maybe would... they because he was part Irish. I said. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna erase all of this. <laughs> I hope uh, not. I realize that how foolish. What if was Doris Day was part of it? <laughs> 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 well, uh, we're doing our merry-go-round before yes, we even start. Yeah. Okay. That's true. Um. So she grew up on a reservation, and then um, her father got a job selling some kind of good, and so they moved to Texas. Hmm. And her mother got a bunch of chickens, and she would serenade the chickens when she was like ten years old. Oh, nice. And her aunt heard her and thought she sounded great and suggested she try out for some radio program. Wow. And she the first time she tried out, won third place. And then every other time she did it, she got first. Wow. And during the she started to earn some income from this. She'd get three dollars a week or something like that. Um during the Great Depression that was quite a bit of money. And she started making a name for herself. So even at age 10, age 15, she was doing these things. Um, she she was signed with someone's big band. I don't remember the name. I'm, I'm, this is all off the top of my head here, sure. so I apologize for any loose parts. Well, but, they, these singers move from band to right. orchestra to orchestra. But so, the yeah. main thing that matters here is that she was only 15, and her parents said she can do it as long as she's got a midnight curfew. <laughs> oh, because she was how old? Then? Only 15. I see. And then when she graduated high school, she went on to work with all kinds of people and made tons of albums. Sure, yep. It's kind of a cool start starting story, yeah. you know? So. I have only one other question left yeah. for you. I wonder if Ringo Starr is part <laughs> Irish. <laughs> the silly K thing. K-Star. Oh, oh my okay. gosh, it's spelled the same. Yeah. Anyway, good. That was a good yeah. uh, a thing new, to know. Definitely yes. brand new that's old because I had just listened to it. Moments before coming here. Well, I'm going to tell you about Fox Butterfield now. Okay. Don't give me the, the duck's quack here, because I'll be way off the topic okay. for a minute. But um, this is what's new 
that's that's kind of old with me is research I'm doing by reading this book by Fox Butterfield, who was a kind of a criminologist. He has written other books. Hmm. He wrote a book many years ago that I read and really liked, um, All God's Children. And now he's written another one similar to it, where he, his, his big theory that he's trying to prove is that crime kind of runs in the family. Mm. That he's got stats, I can't remember them, but it's like this large percentage of the crimes committed in this country are committed by a real small percentage of the families and mm. but they're all it's like these people go into prison and they come out and they go back in and it's, yeah. it's a lot of the crimes are happening by these people and some of this went with or goes with some of the things we talked about earlier about um we were talking about how some of the old radio shows and tv shows kind of ignored that there were people who were like minorities mm-hmm. Let's not include them at all. That was their way of, of not touching that topic. You know? Right. So today, they can't be faulted for having uh, like a black man being a servant or, you know, the way Jack Benny has been kind of... Right. Uh, the omission allows for them to bypass... People don't remember that at all because... They just right. weren't there to be pigeonholed into that position. These old shows are not offensive because they, they, they didn't have these roles for these people that were demoralizing. Right. Or, you know, the, the way some people saw Rochester on right. Jack Benny. So, anyway, I've been kind of mindful of this mm-hmm. stuff. I'm watching as I watch shows like even my my one that I'm currently watching a lot is... Tell me it's not Highway Patrol Highway again. Patrol again. Oh. Highway Patrol... <laughs> It's fascinating to me because I've been watching that and thinking they'll have a, uh, the plot will be there's a, a hardened criminal has escaped from prison and they got to catch him. Mm-hmm. Who's this hardened criminal? He's he, almost always, it's, um, it's some middle aged to old mm-hmm. white guy, you know, he, and he doesn't even look that mean, but he's, he's escaped and he's trying to get away and he's running across his field or whatever. That's who they've got. And even on shows like Dragnet and Highway Patrol, show TV shows from the fifties, they didn't have black people in any of the roles, mm-hmm. you know. And I was thinking about that a lot. And this book by Fox Butterfield addresses this. Wow, it's fascinating to me. Yeah, he says that in the thirties, forties, and fifties, the big criminals who were sought after by the FBI were mostly white guys. Bank robbers. Right. A lot of bank robbers. A lot of like people like the Boston Strangler. Dillinger. Yeah. They're all white guys. And who knows exactly why that is. It's hard to paint with a big broad brush and say it's because of this or that. But I think a lot of times what he says is in the days before all the drugs that were were pretty much Mm -hmm. are part of all this criminal activity today, before the drugs and before all the guns, high-powered weapons, and all the handguns. This was all before that happened. And back in the 50s, the, the the criminals were these white guys who were burglars. They were the, the ones that were most respected in the prisons were the burglars because they were often very smart guys who knew how to break into a bank. They knew how to break a safe mm-hmm. or get into the safe and get the money. They made large hauls when they were successful at these things. So the guys in the prison that, that had all the respect were not these big, tough thugs so much, but these brainy guys who... Mm. The and, Wally Coxes of the world. <laughs> and I think largely they were white back, the white guys back then. That's why they might depict these criminals on Highway Patrol. I don't know. I, I, I just don't know where yeah. these all things these mm. overlap. You know, they, they did have gangs back then. But they were pretty much more like, um, even going back to the old days, the James gang, Jesse James, you know, all these people. These were famous criminals from the past. They were white guys. But I have a yes. question for you, just to clarify, because I think that this, I can't tell if it really was that way or if it's similar to today where... You know, there's kind of a disparity. The many, many of the stories we hear that become famous and newsworthy are about white people because 
for some reason, like, a, a white woman goes missing, and there's a huge story about it, yeah. and then, like, how many other people of color go missing, and there's no big to-do about it, and could it be that we just remember these because Dillinger got remembered by everybody? He's white, and that's why. I could that there, be? There could be a big, a big part of it. I think more than that, even, is the fact that, that back in these old days, black people... Hispanic people, Asian people, they weren't part of the, the the larger business world and all that kind of stuff. So some guy who's, uh, you know, posing as a bank guard who, mm-hmm. who tips off the, the, the bad guys to come in and steal all the money. You know, there was, was mostly these people who were in these privileged positions who might have gotten mixed up in these crimes. I don't know. You didn't have... I don't think these. I don't think in the 1930s it was very unlikely that a, that a black person was going to rob a bank, you know, uh, as yeah. opposed to someone like Dillinger, Pretty Boy Floyd. So when you talk about the thing about these people, uh, many many criminals coming from the same families, were you trying? Were you, was there something more about that you were going to explain? Um, what was your well, that was just, that's that's his that's his Fox Butterfields. That's the the whole take behind his first book that I read, and this next book, which only came out a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. I think the first one, he traced this family that kind of got started. At least the history that he traces started in South Carolina, mm-hmm. and we learn about that guy's cousins, uncles. Mm-hmm. We learn about his children, grandchildren, and they all went through this life of crime. Yeah. And it ends up in Milwaukee, of all places. Wow. Um, I remember when I read that book, I went to the spot where this guy, his his end came. He ended up in a prison mm-hmm. in Wisconsin, and he escaped, and he had his, he was captured, et cetera, wow. et cetera, in Milwaukee. This new book, I think, was a reaction because he chose that story, was the story of the Boskets, who were a black family. Mm-hmm. And he wanted to, sh- to prove, you know, that this happens... Just in general, you know, yeah. not just with, with this kind of race right, or this one. Right. So he put this white family. This is yeah. uh, the Bogles, who started in Tennessee, went to Texas, ended up in Oregon. Mm. So you know, I, I think what you're maybe what you're trying to get at here is the idea that on TV and radio they censored this, or not censored isn't the right word. Mm-hmm. I mean, they omitted this, and I think for every one young white woman who goes missing and makes huge headlines there are dozens of minorities who go missing and there's nothing like that and so i'm what i'm saying is on tv and radio that's true we omit and in reality we do the same thing a while back i found this resource where they compiled all of the um, original mugshots of these criminals and they say that that's a really great way of actually seeing how people were in mm. real life because it you know in the in the Victorian era if there was a photo of somebody it was typically a portrait on their birthday or something sure. they're all Pose. dressed up hose yeah. and everything but if you see somebody in a mugshot they're disheveled they're wearing just regular old clothes and in those you see all kinds of it's never you know that's them yes and it's a lo- it's a v- wide variety of people genders you know, races, whatever. It's all, you see the whole right there. You actually see the representation, not just what's on Highway Patrol or Dragnet <laughs> or, you know. Highway Patrol, in on those shows, and so many others, there are just no black people. There are no Hispanic people. There are just, there's just none. You know, when they go into a motel, because there's some criminal activity going on, the clerks, the guests, the, the cops, the, the bad guys, the good guys, everybody. It's all just, you know, and this is taking place in California. You know, so you know that's inaccurate. Right. But today, of course, we kind of know that it, there's a disproportionate number of, of black people in the prisons. Right. In 1950, I wonder. I, yeah, I, I, yeah. I'd like to see some statistics yeah. about that. Well, if your theory is right that this guy says and the, that crime stays in the family, then clearly it would have been. Because if there's that many people currently in the yeah, system... Yeah, but there then... are other factors, too. Well, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's so true. I think, you know, I, I don't know. You know especially... When does it start? That's the other thing. When does that cycle start? 
pretty much when the drugs started hitting yeah. the streets and yeah. the guns. And yeah. That's what he says, and I think yeah. that's probably true. Everything changed then, you know. Mm. So, anyway. Hey, this is kind I'm of... I'm going to give myself this because <laughs> really... I'm, I'm just glad we've... We've still got so much work to do, yeah, but... true. Boy, is it nice to look back and, and use these things to help us now, you know, recognize... You can see what was going on with better clarity now, mm-hmm. looking back at all that. And, uh, you know, I was a victim of that. I was a little kid when, let's say, hmm, Leave It the Beaver was being made. I was, yeah. That's when I was about the time when I was about one or two or three. And, you know, I grew up. I, yeah. In fact, I lived in a town in northern Wisconsin where there were very few non-white people in my town yeah. so it was kind of easy to think this is the way it is you know right and it was so wrong mm. but i'm gonna we gotta cut it off here. i'm gonna go off it is because, what it was right yes and i'm gonna this is kind of leading into my one Ooh. thing i want to say i got a piece of communication from an old friend from my old hometown up in, in marinette and he now lives in north carolina and he's the one I referred to before as the, the guy who liked Indiana Watts me so much. <laughs> and I got a letter from him or an email from him in which he says he's been liking this little show of ours and comp- paid some compliments. But he also said that some of his colleagues who listened with him in his office identified <laughs> my voice as having this dialect from the upper Midwest. <laughs> <laughs> so when I told you that, you said, oh, yeah, my friends all say you have that, Dad. You, too, probably have it. I know. <laughs> I know. So, but Jim, one of the things that cracked me up the most is when he said that in my defense, he told his colleagues that who were saying I have this, this accent that they could recognize right away. And I know I do only because I hear it when I, go, when I travel out of the state. Yeah. People will say, where are you from, Canada? And <laughs> I, of course, I don't hear anything. I don't know yeah. what's going on. His his colleagues were t- giving him that, and he said that he told them, no, he just has a voice like a bowl of warm stew. <laughs> <laughs> oh, which proves that he really listened to our show, I guess. Yeah, but right. yeah, that was so funny. <laughs> but you know, thinking back to these old radio shows, especially because they're such a, it's something that you just listen to. Mm-hmm. Movies and TV too will have this, um, but radio especially you will hear these dialects. Yes. And I miss that I so know. much. You don't get it so much anymore. But if you listen to a show from bomb. 1940, you'll get these mm-hmm. heavy accents because the cities then were populated by all these Italian right. immigrants or Irish or, you know, and you've got all these different dialects always. And, yeah. and it was so much fun to listen to them. I When I listen to these old radio shows i notice all the announcers they don't have an italian accent they just right. have a sort of a yeah regular old announcer accent but they still have an old-fashioned dialect oh. you know when don wilson says hello everyone out in los angeles <laughs> or los angeles or whatever the heck he yeah, is, says that, it's very interesting <laughs> to hear there's some there's something different i remember last time we talked about dan seymour he was the announcer on henry aldrich uh-huh and he has such a unique voice. And this is Dan Seymour in New York saying, the Aldrich family is brought to you by the Jell-O family. Hey, but when you've got Henry and Homer, <laughs> very few people are going to be listening to that announcer's know, funny voice. I guess I've listened to those shows so many times that even he has made it into my heart. <laughs> or even, is it House Jameson? House Jameson and <laughs> Catherine Roth. <laughs> He's got a voice. Yeah, House he Davison does. As, yeah. as the father of Henry You know, Aldrich. I read something about, I considered um, teaching you a little bit about the Aldrich family not too long ago. So I did a little research and I found out, um, <laughs> I saw some quote from Homer Brown or Jackie Kelk that he felt as a an individual, not a character, was more aligned with the character of Henry Aldrich than oh, Ezra Stone was. Yeah, yeah. That when Ezra Stone would come in, he'd turn on that voice. Yeah. But he'd come into the studio smoking a cigar. I see. He was like a kind of a big guy. Yes. And here's Jackie Kelkies. He was a kind of nerdy in real life. So <laughs> yep, I thought that I've was kind of funny. I've seen pictures of him. Yeah. To yeah. imagine Henry Aldrich smoking a big cigar and kind of... <laughs> Shooting the crap around with oh, everybody. Oh, that's funny. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, 
Well, before we move, I, I yeah. do have I have a little something to tell you about yeah. Green Acres. And I've got Eden Abez. Good. But before we move into that, I've got to mm-hmm. tell you this. This is another new thing that's old for me. I've been listening to the ra- to old radio shows. Mm-hmm. And these are familiar from the comics page. Blondie. Yep. And Archie. Those Archie Andrews. Yeah. Those were radio shows in the 40s that were real popular. But boy, <laughs> they are hard. <laughs> to enjoy anymore i don't know the, the writing the plot Just, so silly oh and so i found the voices sometimes a little grating on the ear it's like whoa yeah. just quiet down a little bit <laughs> well that was bob hastings who did archie mm-hmm. we met him mm-hmm. yeah and and jughead was hal stone hal we met stone. him too yeah. yep mm-hmm. yep we met both of those guys good old, old friends age. with hal stone <laughs> <laughs> yeah they were good it was mm-hmm. it was it was Fun and good in so many ways, yeah. but you know the thing is, if you're based on a comic strip, people already have an idea of what those characters are supposed to right. be like. Yeah. So, you know, they're they're limited in that way of, as far as developing their character. Sure. Yeah. But the one with with I was listening to a Blondie episode, and I should have known better. I knew it was going to be like this, but as I was I was walking the dog and listening <laughs> at the same time, so I was kind of stuck with this show, and I was listening to it. And as it went on, I have this new f- phrase that I coined for myself, laughably unfunny. <laughs> um, <laughs> that show, after a while, it was so bad that I started laughing a little bit like, whoa, this is <laughs> so laughably unfunny. Yeah. The, the, the plot of this thing, Dagwood was dreaming every night and his dreams came true. They were dreams like um, Blondie's found ten a ten dollar bill, and then she did, you know. So his boss, Mister Dithers, learned about this, and instead of really capitalizing on such a thing, he said, "Oh, I need you to help me." He has a bet with his wife, who's going to win this boat race, and whoever wins this bet gets to choose where they're going to go on their vacation: the shore, the seashore, or the mountains. So Mister Dithers really wants to win this bet. So they go through all this turmoil to get Dagwood to dream to find out who's going to win this boat race. And it is so stupid. Oh. <laughs> but why Why would you choose that thing? Yeah. You know, to, if you could, you could probably, what's going to be the stock that's going to go out right. you know, through the roof? Yeah. Whatever, if you're a businessman. But, oh, he said at one point, this is the only way I'll be able to go on my vacation where I want to go. Really? <laughs> Talk to your wife. Now, what the heck? <laughs> Jeez. What is this? Oh, that show. Oh, oh but it was popular enough. Yeah. It was on for a few years, I think. That's, oh. that's the kind of thing where you really, really, that's, you have to practice to get yourself in the right mindset to enjoy that, you know, and to remember why someone at the time would, why it would become so popular, you know? Yeah. Why was it so popular? Sometimes I have to do that with Fibber, Mickey, and Molly. I like that show, but it's too quick-witted and uh, you, you really can't have listen to, to too many in a row. No, and so you listen have to, one, to take a break. Yeah. kind of like think, okay, I know what, I'm, I'm going to start this <laughs> and I don't, don't expect it a good, you know, quiet Vic and Sade or, you know, I don't yeah. know, whatever. It's going to be different. It's going to be, it's going to be They came like a clip. You know, there'd yeah. be things like Fibber would say, um, well, as the they're waiting for something mm-hmm. to happen, or someone to arrive or something. And he says, well, it's like what the monkey said after the lawnmower ran over his tail. It won't be long now. You know, so the, and those kinds but, of jokes would come. Every five seconds. Yeah. It's like, how do you even come up? And I it's hard feel bad for up. the writers that they would have to crank them out like that every week. <laughs> <sighs> Anyway, By the I'm, way, I, I like that little thing about the monkey stand. I can tell. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Uh. <laughs> anyway. Oh, okay. Well, I guess. Or do you have right. more to say on that? I don't. But okay. That, well, I we're off. You started with Blondie and you were on to Fibber McGee's t- monkey's tail. <laughs> That's why I haunted. You put us on to Fibber <laughs> McGee. Okay. You want to go with your guy? Sure. I'll tell okay. you about him. So, Eden Abez. The mysterious Eden Abez. Eden Abez. Do you remember who he is? Yeah. Okay. You, only because you talked to him about him yeah. before. I know a little bit about Nature Boy. Yeah. 
but I don't know anything. Didn't know anything about yeah. the background of it. This man is very interesting. Yes, he is the one who wrote Nature Boy. If you're familiar with the song, the song Nature Boy, yeah. yeah. Made that was famous Nat King by Cole. Nat King yeah. Cole. I remember way back, I don't know, a few months ago, listening to the song Nature Boy on repeat because it's so moody and mysterious and lovely. Eden Abed. He was born in 1908 and lived until 1995. And that song got popular in the 40s. Yes. Right? Yeah. He was most active in the 40s through the 60s. Um, he lived to, to what year? 95. Wow. He was life. killed in a car accident. Really? Yeah. Wow. Geez. Yeah. Um, he, he was walking on the street and was hit oh, by somebody. So, uh, yeah, he was he was um, born George Alexander Aberil Aberly, and was... Eden Abez. He changed his name to Eden Abez. And he, as a kid, he, he was an orphan and grew up in an orphanage and then was adopted by a Jewish family and was very musical and ended up moving to, to Los Angeles. He camped out underneath the first L in the Hollywood sign. That was his home. <laughs> and studied Oriental mysticism, traveled around in sandals, um, had a long beard, long, long hair, which was very rare the for that. typical picture of Jesus. Yeah. Yes. He was a hippie before hippie the hippie movement. Mm-hmm. Long before. Um, very very unique person for his time i think uh yeah he slept outside with his whole family he was a hippie before hippies were cool (laughs) (laughs) yes what'd you say last he he and his whole he had wife and kids oh really and only ate fruits and vegetables camped under that l they all lived under the l yes wow yep he just had a bike to get around he had very few possessions wow um i mean he is really committed to this lifestyle well, if you had a bike, that L is up in the mountains. Yeah. And you going down would be easy. Going back up every night, <laughs> right. and he's done. Right. I know. Um, yeah. So he started playing piano at dance halls as a young man, and then started to play piano in L.A. in around 1941 at this health food store. They called it the Eutrophian. And these people who would hang out at this health food store called themselves nature boys. Wow. It was like a lifestyle choice. Wow. Yeah. Um, and he started playing this song that was based off this Yiddish tune. So hmm. this, the tune you hear on Nature Boy ah. is this Yiddish thing. And like to hear the original of that. I know. I tried finding it and I couldn't. I couldn't find it. I don't. I think it may not be a like a formal recording. I think it's like a folk sure, song sure. sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe I could be wrong about that though. So he. Re- totally rejected all these artificial structures of society and all this kind of stuff. And this is just his way of doing things. This DJ who hung out at this, at this health food store heard him playing this song and he said, you should go bring that to Nat King Cole. So he biked over to the this... Nat King Cole? Why'd they pick him out of all? I don't know. He I was, think... This guy knew him a little bit yep, or something? And I, I know that Nat was looking for... Looking to add a Jewish tune to his repertoire for some wow. reason. I don't know why. <laughs> <laughs> who would know that? I don't I, these resources I used for this, by the way, are Behind the Song Nature Boy by Eden Abez, an article by Paul Zalo on americansongwriter.com. Okay. A very great resource. And spaceagepop.com, an article on Eden All Abez. Right. If you wanted to know, that's what okay. it is. Um, he biked his little butt over to Nat King Cole's uh, theater where he was performing and had this dirty old scrap of paper, huh. and he handed it to Nat's manager and then the rest is history nat looked at it and recognized that tune and later they had to go to court because it really was a it was somebody else's song and they so settled. the song was written on this dirty old piece of paper yes okay what did i, what did I say did I well i assume that you said he had them a dirty old piece of paper oh the song was <laughs> yes, on there um, all right i knew that so he, so for a long time, Cole had this, he messed around with it a little bit, but kind of put it on hold for a while, but would perform it live once in a while. And people really loved it live. And so later when he was trying to round out his song choices, he thought, well, maybe I should try recording this. And he did. And it just was yeah. a huge hit. Yep. It topped the charts. All kinds of other performers um, recorded it yep. too, because they recognized how great it was. And... The bad thing is nobody bothered to secure the rights when they did this. So finally, the manager, Mort Ruby, tracked Abez down at the first L <laughs> to oh. tell him, 
you know, we got you're doing great with the song, and Eden Abes didn't really care about it. He really, was, he d- wasn't writing that song to become famous. He just it was just uh. about the lifestyle for him. When Abes got the rights, he gave shares of it away and ended up with hardly anything. Really? Yep. And after Nat King Cole passed away, his wife gave the total rights back to Abez. Oh. So. What did he want? What did he do with them? I don't know. He didn't really want them. I I think it, I, mean, I think finally he realized okay. maybe that that he. Interesting story. <laughs> I know. It's so fascinating to find out all of this extra stuff about this this one little song, and this man that was yeah. attached to it. And I mean, he went on to do other smaller projects and things. Um, but was totally in that in that underground art scene that I yeah, am so fascinated yeah. by, and I know he worked with the Beach Boys here and there. Imagine that! Yeah, all that stuff that happened in, in know. that area at that time. Wow. Yeah, reminds me a little bit now. This is off the topic, but I remember doing some reading about Fleetwood Mac mm. and Peter Green, who was in the original uh, configuration of that band, and he he left, you know, and then they they went through lots of different. Uh, people coming and going until they finally really made it big. Sure. Big, big, big. But um, Peter Green was there, and he wrote the song that Santana made famous later, oh. Black Magic Woman. That was, if you listen to the early yeah. Fleetwood Mac albums, it's on there. Huh. And they do a, a, a version of it, of course, and, and uh, Santana took it and, and did what they did with it. But that song, Peter Green wrote other songs too, but that one, for years and years, it was bringing in all kinds of royalties mm. for him. But that poor guy, um, I think he left the band because the other members forced him out. He was getting kind of, he was um, mentally ill. Mm. And he was like dressing in a sheet and trying to perform on stage and mm. doing all these goofy things. And they, they got him out. And his illness got worse and worse. Mm. And it ended up where he, he did not want more money he was mm. he was like telling these managers and people stop giving me money well these royalty checks kept coming in and there was one point where they they delivered one to him and he came out with a shotgun Yay. trying to get get him get out of here with this i don't want this so what a struggle that yeah. was you know um yeah and what how unusual is that to, to not want yeah the royalty money that comes in when you're when you're a writer or a performer like that but and he passed away a couple, yeah. I don't know how long ago, not too long ago. There's got, I mean, there's so much psychology that goes along with fame and that kind of thing. Maybe for him that represented something. I don't or... know. Yeah, he, he kind of, maybe he got into a lifestyle where he was like no possessions and all right. that. Right. Yeah. And that's, he just didn't want I mean, that's this. Yeah. Even after this guy made but it this huge. guy, he wasn't mentally ill. No. And he went, lived a long, long yeah. life, you know. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, the thing is, after he became... After he hit it big, he stayed living under that L, sleeping in sleeping bags. How long? Not till nineteen ninety. I don't know. Nope, no, not. I know that at one point in the in the research, I, I don't remember all of the details, but something like he <laughs> ended up living on some kind of commune or something like that. Okay. But, I mean, it's just living fascinating. Under thing. the L. Yeah. <laughs> he had a, all oh. he owned was a sleeping bag and a juicer and a and a bike. <laughs> it's like what in the world? <laughs> wow. Yeah. Well, I'm going to move yep. us on yep. to Green Acres because Great. I promised I would do a little research Green on Green Acres. Green Acres is the place. Well, Green Acres, I actually, I don't, I don't know if I'm proud of this or ashamed of this. I have a couple of of personal ties to that show. <laughs> <laughs> um, Green what Acres was the third of three shows that were produced by this Paul Henning, who came up with the Beverly Hillbillies. And then he came up with Petticoat Junction. Mm. And then the producers wanted a third show. And he himself didn't come up with Green Acres, but he had a friend mm. who, uh, this Jay Summers, who you see his name on the front of these shows. But Paul Henning's name is there too, because Paul Henning was like the executive producer or something. Okay. So these are these are all, these three shows all kind of go together. And lot, lots of times you'll see characters from one on one of the other mm-hmm. ones. So Uncle Joe from Petticoat Junction will sometimes be on yes, Green Acres or yeah. whatever. They did that a lot. Um, maybe not a lot, but they did it quite a bit. Green Acres was on from 1965 until 1971. And of the three shows, it's my personal favorite. Um, Beverly Hillbillies can be very amusing. 
Pettigold Junction, my least favorite. But Green Acres, it still cracks me up to watch that show. I love it because of the main character, especially, I, I always am most amused by uh, Mr. Kimball mm-hmm. and the goofy stuff that he does. But the show is carried by Eddie Albert, who has this character, the city man who wants to be a farmer, and his wife who reluctantly comes with him and, and decides to do it, at least for a while, and turns into more than that. But this guy was perfect for the spot, and I for that role. And I think that what I... I didn't know this when I was a kid watching it. It was only a few years ago when I was watching old reruns of Green Acres that it occurred to me that I must really like when this happens to a character where you're misunderstood and everybody else is kind of dumping abuse on this person. (laughs) And that's Eddie Albert's role as as, uh, Oliver Douglas. Even though he's kind of like the one who's got it all together. He is the only one who really is smart and knows what he's doing. And everybody else is all (laughs) confused. And that's much, it's kind of like Jack Benny. Yeah. Jack Benny is struggling. He's got all these goofy people kind of giving him a lot of disrespect. And it's so much, it's just, this show is so much fun because you've got Eddie Albert who is constantly trying to make sense of his, of his world. And he's got his wife who is completely clueless and, and, and misunderstanding everything. Yeah. He has this Ebb character who also is, he's a hired hand, but at some point he he asks if he can call Eddie Albert or Oliver dad. And I don't think he gets a yes, but he does forever after. <laughs> hey, dad, you know, and this is annoying Eddie Albert. And Eddie Albert's big thing is, to he starts saying these things and never finishes them. Like, what the... You, uh, what, what? He's always doing that kind of stuff, and it's to great effect. I think he's so much funny. <laughs> so much fun. You've got Mr. Haney and Kimball and the whole cast, Alf and Ralph, those carpenters who come over, and they never can get the job done, you know? But my connection... It seems oh, like, like maybe the reason that one stands out to you more than... <laughs> Beverly Hillbillies making an observation here about your general <laughs> likes when it comes to comedy. It seems like if it's a one unit thing, this combination of the same people from week to week get into a pickle together. But if it's a wide variety of characters coming in, there's the main cast, but then every week there's some other voice yeah. and a different And person. you never know who. You never know. And, yeah. you, and then when you hear that voice or you see that character come on screen, you're like, oh, this type of problem is going to happen now because mm-hmm. you know... Well, when Mr. Kitzel shows up, this is what happens. Yes. Oh, it's, I think mm-hmm. that's the key. I think that we figured it out. You like Gildersleeve? There's such a wide cast of characters in that show. With Gildersleeve, yes. Because every show, eventually, not the early ones, but there comes a point where they introduce the character mm-hmm. of Peavy. Right. And every show, Peavy right. comes early, he leaves middle, home. or at the end. He, he Gildy leaves to go to work or something and stops at the store. Or, you mm-hmm. know, and it's just kind of... You know, he might run into Floyd the barber. He might run into the judge. It's just you'll you, there's different people, so then suddenly the whole storyline can take a different, different. Yeah. And, and Love and Abner too. Just it's, an observation. It's, fun, it's a fun thing to observe. Yeah, yeah. What makes you laugh is yeah. what you're yeah. kind of trying to analyze here. Because uh, I could see somebody else thinking, "Oh, Kimball, are you kidding me? I hate that when he does." That I know. Thing. You Some know, people get frustrated on, by that. It yeah. depends on your mood. Because why is that string of constant words? funny and and the Fibber McGee stuff can be kind of overwhelming sometimes True. why why is one why does one work why does one a little harder to take you know it's just fascinating and I think if there's a, somebody who is currently frustrated themselves with people at work who don't understand them yeah <laughs> and then they watch the Green Acres they'll not be amused by no, that stuff you you're know? right That's a so good you've point. got to be coming from a good spot you yeah know? Because it can be, it can be very frustrating and annoying to have yeah. to be witnessing this person yeah. who can't get his message across, mm-hmm. you know, no matter what he does. Green Acres, there was this, this surreal uh, stuff going on all yeah. the time where they would be referring to the letters that were on the screen. What do you Green, mean by that? It would say, like, music by Vic Mizzy. That's who oh. wrote it. And they'd say, who's this Vic Mizzy? <laughs> they all be looking at this. Somehow they'd be looking at the letters on the screen. Once in a while they would do that. Thinking beyond the typical yeah. story. Or famously... Eddie Albert would start giving this little speech 
about the, the pride of the American farmer. They would take the seeds and they would nurture them and grow. And everybody would be listening to this. And there'd be this fife music playing in the back, something like uh, Yankee Doodle or some kind of an American mm-hmm. song in the background. And the, the characters would all say, where's this music coming from? You know, <laughs> so A lot of that was going on with Green Acres. <laughs> it was fun. Breaking the, what is it? The fourth wall. Yes. Yes, that's what they did. Yep. And take this. Let's listen to this. There was a show, I remember hearing about it, Granby's Green Acres. Mm-hmm. That was on radio. And that was... Um, Created by this Jay Summers. Hmm. It was on TV only for the summer of 1950. It was a summer replacement for a, a bigger show. Huh. And it starred B. Benaderet, huh. who was later Kate on right. Pedigo Junction and famously on yeah. Jack Benny. She was the voice of Betty Rubble and on right. Flintstone. But it was B. Benaderet and Gail Gordon hmm. played the male lead. Another famous name from Lucille Ball mm-hmm. and lots of other radio shows. It was kind of a spinoff of My Favorite Husband, in fact. Oh. Grandby's Green Acres. These people that they knew moved to the country and did Whoa. this. And it was Jay Summers who created it. And then it sat dormant for a long time until Paul Henning came along and said, Hey, friend wow. Jay, let's get a show on TV involving your Green Acres. Yeah. So they did. You know? And this was all during that surge where there was a huge push for this, like, backcountry The rural kind of, yeah. And then they all went off at the same time, too. Yep, yep. 1971, this did. Yeah. That was about the time when they just said, we, we don't want done. country yeah. stuff anymore. And all those shows went off. Yeah. Beverly Hillbillies, Andy Griffith, a lot of yep. those. My personal takes. Oh, yes. That I'm kind of embarrassed to admit. Yeah. One of them was Paul Henning. I called him once. <laughs> He's passed away now. But he was probably 90. And I had written this, I written a story that involved the writing of these shows, and it was poking fun a little bit at the whole thing. It was supposed to go in my this book that I wrote a long time ago, full of funny stories, mm-hmm. waiting for dinner or death. And I wanted his permission. I wrote to him, and I got a letter back from the, his lawyer mm. saying, "No, I don't give you permission." <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was just a courtesy, you know. Yeah. I'll, I'll ask him if I can use his name and in, in the story, and no. And so I, I remember calling and talking to this lawyer, and he was there in the background. And she said, I understand what you're doing, and we appreciate you calling and asking. He's he, But he doesn't understand. He doesn't, doesn't like the idea that you're making fun of, of his show. And it's like, well, I, I admire the show. That's why I want to put it in yeah. there. So I ended up not using it in that book. But I could hear him in the background. <laughs> she said, you know, he said something like, what does he have against me? Or something like that. Oh. So I know, yeah. You can only talk to him and say, no. That's why I called. I wanted to clarify, you know. Jeez, Mm -hmm. you know. But the other personal reference to Green Acres is much more fun. I learned, this was when I lived in Milwaukee, probably around 1987. Eddie Albert was coming to town. 1987, that was 16 years after the show ended. He came to Milwaukee. He was going around the state of Wisconsin, and he was doing fundraisers or something for the farmers. You could go and meet him at this outdoor place down by the lakefront, and I wanted to go. And the funny thing is, oh, the funny thing is, your this is like your mother's and my second date. Oh my god! <laughs> oh, I said, would you like to go with this? And she agreed, so we went. And we stood in this long line and waited to get oh up. Oh, my God. <laughs> Knowing Mom, she must have really liked you. Well, she didn't like Green Acres very much. And, she still doesn't. <laughs> and my sister, when she heard this, my sister Joan, because I, I used to complain to her about how how much trouble I was having finding someone who would click with me and everything else. <laughs> I'm finally dating this woman. I take her to see Green Acres. It was, it was um, Eddie Albert. Not just him. Oh. Eddie Albert and <laughs> Eb. Uh, Tom Lester played yeah. Eb. He was there. Mary Grace Canfield, who played Ralph the Carpenter. Oh, yeah. And Mr. Kimball, Albie Moore. All four wow, of them were there. Mr. I got, Kimball. I got their autographs. Holy man. Oh, was that fun. What did your sister say, though? She was like, what are you doing? Your second date and you go there. Don't do oh, such things. Oh, I can't but... find anyone <laughs> Who knows who you who you asked your past dates to go see? Why they all fell apart? You want to yeah. go see? Who, who can you even think of? I do remember taking along with me that day. There's a record album. <laughs> Eddie Albert singing folk songs 
blown in the wind. They're, 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 oh, yeah. Oh, man. Did you bring it? Did you have him sign it? I had him sign it. I still have it <laughs> right over there. Really nice signature. Imagine if you asked some date to go see <laughs> Alan Sherman. Like that. Well, I just can't find anyone who will Well, match. he passed away before. I know. <laughs> if he hadn't, you would have. <laughs> well, when Eddie Albert saw that record, apparently he hadn't seen it in a long time. He kind of forgot about it. But here I was standing there. I was third in line, then second in line, and pretty soon it was my turn. He looked and saw that. He kind of, he didn't groan, but he gave it a look. And then when I came up, I said, would you sign this? Oh, that cockamamie thing. But he signed it. <laughs> oh, that's great. Oh, yeah, that was a lot of fun. Yeah, that's awesome. Wow. So. What a good experience. Green Acres, yeah. The theme song is a real winner. This Vic Mizzy. He also did the theme song for The Addams Family. He wrote oh, it. Oh, wow. Two very, very yeah. iconic songs. Isn't that something? Yeah. yeah. He did a lot of other music for movies, a lot of those Don Knotts movies he did. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the, the thing the, about Green Acres was the, that the, the cast members themselves sang it. And that was pretty unusual. I can't think of any oh. other show where, they did, where that happened. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. It was mainly... And Oliver it's a, and Lisa. Yeah. And it's like, I always liked that because it told a story. And even if you knew the story already, what the setup yeah, was. I, sure. li- I always liked. I don't think anybody gets sick of that song. Going back and forth yeah. and she's saying, give me Park Avenue. You know, That's I love the whole, that part. the whole plot of it, yeah. Yeah. I think we're about time for our yep. merry-go-round ride. Yes. Okay. I'm looking around the room. What does she have? The Marx Brothers. The Marx Brothers. Look over here, the Marx Brothers. Oh, sure. Well, let's see. That can go in so many different directions. I I would love to talk about the Marx Brothers right now for an hour. (laughs) So I was thinking about individual ones. Should I say Harpo? Should I say Groucho? I'm going to say way off. Warner Brothers. Oh. I'm going to just focus on brothers and change it to Warner Brothers. Okay, Warner Brothers. All right, then I'm going to say Yosemite Sam. Oh, boy. I will say Mel Blanc. He did the voice mm-hmm. for a lot of those characters, and including Yosemite Sam. Yeah. My brain goes right to Jack Benny, but I'm not supposed to do you Jack. You can do Jack Benny. All right, do a Jack Benny. Jack Benny. All right. Mel Blanc was a good, funny voice on the Jack Benny radio show. Somebody else who had a funny voice on the Jack Benny show, Artie Auerbach. I, I know a couple years ago you would have veered it right over where I want you to go. Where? Wait, where? I don't know what I don't know. What Dan Auerbach. Yeah, but that's not an well, old that's part of not, pop oh, culture. I suppose. Okay. Dan Auerbach. Dan Auerbach of the Black Keys. Okay, I set that right up I'm for you. Probably you're a big fan. Right, but I thought we were supposed to keep it, you know, no. pre nineteen seventy nine. Well, we talked in here about Alice Cooper. Um, True. That's 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 pretty pre seventy nine. But th- too. I mean, he's currently making music today. So, yeah. I mean, yeah. I don't know. True. Yeah. You're right. But too bad. Okay. Dan Auerbach. Dan Auerbach. Okay. <laughs> no, I'm not happy because I, I'm a dead end. I don't know the other guy's name anymore. The drummer. I was going to say Artie Shaw. Oh, that would have been good. Well, Dan Auerbach. I'm going to go with Dan Blocker. Dan Blocker. You don't know? Who's that? <laughs> There's always got to be know. one who's that in this game. <laughs> There's a Dan Blocker highway in... In the California near Los Angeles. Give me some hints. He was an actor who played a famous role on TV that you don't know. So <laughs> about well, the same. A lot. About, <laughs> <Jeez>. <laughs> well, apparently you don't know. I thought maybe you oh, would. Oh, okay. So from the same era as Green Acres. Oh. Roughly. Bonanza. Oh. He was on Bonanza. Oh, I don't know that show very played well. Played Haas. I always saw Dan Blocker. Haas. <laughs> <laughs> There was one I watched recently of, of Bonanza, which I'm not thrilled with all the time. This was the Old West. These are rough characters. Almost everybody on that show, especially the, the main characters from the family there, they all are so well-groomed and they, their <laughs> clothes look nice. They go in the barn. There's a little coil of rope on the wall. There's a wagon wheel over here. Everything's neat and clean and nice. It's like, holy man. But... I don't know, but I was watching one recently, and they show Dan Blocker as Haas, and he's kind of leaning against the fence, looking at someone. You don't, you're not sure who it is, and he's saying, "Darling, since I've got you in my life, everything has changed. I'm, 
it's very out of character for him to be this mushy talk with this dreamy look on his face and then they they pan out and you can see he's talking to his horse (laughs) (laughs) was it supposed to be a comedy no, they're I funny parts, oh, but okay. it was it was a yeah. Western adventure okay. show. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for the. <laughs> <laughs> so there you are, Haas. Okay, who else do I know that's named Haas? We started with the Marx Brothers and we're stuck in Haas. <laughs> you have to come up with some pills. <laughs> All right. <laughs> you want me to? Yeah. Okay, Bonanza. Let me think. Lauren Green, Green Acres. Yeah. <laughs> Getting closer to making a full circle. How about Blue and Green? Blue and Green. Wow. Nice song. Mm-hmm. Miles Davis. Miles away from the original ah. thing we said. Well, let me think. Miles. I'm trying to get this back to the Marx Brothers. So, yeah. Miles Davis, Blue and Green. Oh, I know. So, Blue and Green is a beautiful jazz song. And do you know the... This is a pretty big stretch. <laughs> Do you know the musician Dorothy Ashby? No. She plays harp. When did she do this? In the 50s, I think. Okay. Hmm. She's got an album called Hip Harp, and it's like wow. jazz harp. Did it's not know of gorgeous. this. Mm-mm. So, I mean, I know that's a pr- quite a stretch, but ah, ah. it brings us back to... Harpo. Right. And I was going to say, that if you're going to say that, the only album or CD that I have of anybody playing harp is Harpo Marks playing really? the harp. Yeah, he could really play the harp. It was very, it's very beautiful. Huh. You know? the, those scenes on those Marx Brothers Chico movies heart, Marx, when they were playing, playing the, the piano. piano. Yeah, he could play. It re- for, I mean, not just play, but he his perform with his fingers is it's fascinating. Yeah. It's so much fun to watch. Well, so there we, we go. really did it. He did yeah. it. <laughs> kind of. I mean, kind of weird green. from blue and green to this harp player. Then the, the yeah, the quick I just jump wanted to, the harp to bring yeah. up. Yep. Yeah, yeah, good. Yeah. I think you'd like her her work too. I really enjoy it myself. So, but we did a great good job. Nice. Did you want to pick a new topic for next sure. week or not? Yeah. All right, let's pick it. Okay. Should I go first? Sure. All right. Let's see here. Oh, I got a good one. The Almond Brothers. Great. I, I know a little bit about them already, but I need to learn more and get some details so I can share them with you. Okay. Yeah. yeah. That's a great one. Good. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that covers a, a long span of time, actually. Yeah. So, yeah. All right. Yeah. Okay. And now my turn. Okay, I picked The Pajama Game, that movie with Doris That's a movie. Day. Oh. I don't know who the other male lead is, I forget. But Doris Day was mentioned early in this episode oh, yes, today. Oh, yes, that's yeah. right. Boy, we did a full circle on that. Yeah. Too. Okay. Great. Well, thanks for the a great chat. Thanks for the great thanks. chat, too. Yeah.